0: And with Father's Day right around the corner, I am so excited for the next few minutes because I am speaking with a husband and wife who are two tremendously gifted writers who write so uh, intriguingly and thought-provokingly about parenthood, fatherhood, motherhood. Uh, because it's father, Father's Day right around the corner, I'll say first that one of my guests is Michael Chabon, and he is a Pulitzer Prize-winning writer, and uh, the author of a number of highly regarded uh, novels and most recently a book of nonfiction, a memoir called manhood for amateurs the pleasures and regrets of a husband father and son uh... his wife is Iolette Waldman and also a very very gifted writer uh... at least seven novels to her credit and uh, much of her work springs from the, some of her experience as a federal public defender and uh... She is also uh, well-known for an essay that she wrote some years ago uh, on motherhood. And uh, her book is called Bad Mother, A Chronicle of Maternal Crimes, Minor Calamities, and Occasional Moments of Grace. Uh, Both of these books are available now in paperback. I highly recommend both of them. And I am thrilled beyond words to be speaking with both of these fine writers today on The Morning Show. Ayelet Waldman, Michael Shabon, we welcome both of you to The Morning Show
1: you. It's great to be here. It's terrific.
0: I'm absolutely thrilled to be uh, talking with you. Um, Tell us a little bit about uh, what your household is like, not so much personally, but professionally. How do you coexist and collaborate and help one another uh, as two very busy, gifted writers? What kind of a partnership is this?
2: Well, one that involves a tremendous amount of negotiation and reinvention every 15 minutes, wouldn't you say, honey?
0: Yes,
1: um, absolutely. I mean, the, the situation is is always very fluid, uh, partly just because, I think it's partly because it's the nature of the work we do, that projects come and go, um, when, one or the other of us might be working you know, now on a TV pilot, now on a movie script, now on a novel or an article or whatever it might be, and, and the sort of um, professional needs in and around that particular project are different from what came before, and so things have to be readjusted for that reason. Uh, our schedules are always kind of shifting and changing, and then you know there are these um, children around um, who um, whose uh, schedules are always in some kind of flux or another. So there's there's always a lot of um, adjustment and fine-tuning and refinement that, that needs to be made. It's not like we kind of set up a schedule that worked you know, 10 years ago, and we've stuck to it ever since. Far from it.
2: But the way things work right now, it's sort of, I mean, there's the kind of practical aspect of it, which is, you know, some of the, the more interesting features of that are we share an office. We didn't used to. Michael used to have this fabulous man cave out in the backyard, this fortress of solitude, complete with a really comfy leather couch, which he could nap on. And then and I would write in cafes in the neighborhood, and um, I loved that primarily because it gave me an excuse to eat all day. But um then what happened was I got terrible carpal tunnel syndrome. We actually both got it at the same time, which is so weirdly codependent. codependent.
0: (laughs) How romantic. (laughs) Yes.
2: Sharing ice packs late at night. But um but then I had to sit at a desk. I could no longer write on a laptop and Michael very graciously got rid of that wonderful couch and put a desk in his office. So now we share that office. We work back to back. Um his half of the office is covered in um, comic book, you know, paraphernalia, and what is what's on what's on your walls right now? All sorts of things about music in the
1: yeah, I've got a lot of uh, like uh, vintage 1970s funk and soul related imagery up on the wall. And right on there.
2: my blackboard right now, there's a ton of stuff about um, about Budapest in 1900 and Salzburg in 1945, and all sorts of maps of World War Two. And uh, and we just we work out there. We have somewhat different schedules, so Michael tends to work at night, and I work in the day. But we're often out there together.
0: Hmm. So the veritable fly on the wall would be probably a little bewildered by what. Uh, yeah. <laughs> which way to look? Yeah, <laughs> which
2: you think? But the but the more I think the more interesting part about it is is that we but we work even though we're always working on different projects. We work really closely together, so that we uh, we. Uh, we drop everything when the other person has a problem that needs to be worked out. We read each other's work. We hash out the story together. We, you know, we're we're like each other's first consultants on issues of plot, on character, on um, uh you know, we do different things for each other. Michael Michael when I'm finished with a novel, Michael attacks it with an incredibly aggressive red pen, which is really fabulous.
1: Although oh yeah, of mine... you think it's so fabulous,
2: don't you? <laughs> well, I know now I do because I finished a book and I won't be done with another one for two years. <laughs> now I'm very happy with it. Don't ask me in two years when I'm, you know, looking at my manuscript usually, and crying. Uh, usually,
1: she hits me over the head with the manuscript <laughs> that's all covered in red pen marks. That's the first reaction.
0: Michael Chabon, um, I read someplace that, uh, but this is from ten years ago. You being quoted as saying that you wrote from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. Every single day, well, or at least five days out of a week.
1: Other way around, uh, 10 10 p.m. to 3 a.m.
0: Oh, 10 p.m. to 3 a.m.? Yeah. Ah, that makes a little more sense. Mm -hmm. Is that still something like your routine?
1: Actually, lately, yes.
0: For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Michael Shabon and Ayelet Waldman, husband and wife and both tremendously gifted writers. We're talking about two books recently out, both reflections of their own lives and, uh, and their lives together. Ayelet Waldman's book, Bad Mother, and Michael Shabon's book, Manhood for Amateurs. Michael Chabon, uh I love a, a moment in, I believe it's your book, that's the thing your your okay. two books are a little bit blurred in my head but yes i'm just checking to make sure yes uh i love a chapter in your book in which you shed new light on the word amateurs mm. and i i don't think it's particularly with that in mind that you titled your book manhood for amateurs tell us first in the more sort of obvious way you've you've given the book this title but then uh, this other other idea about the word amateurs that I think is is, is so profound.
1: Well, thank you. I I, I mean, yeah. The the and I know the immediate effect of the word amateurs when you when you hear it, what you think of, um, what we tend to think of right away is to think of um, uh, unprofessional, in the most negative sense of the term, uh, with a kind of implication of. Uh, only partial competency, a lack of uh, training or qualification. Um, you know, they're, 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 so the idea is, is to, you know, in the title, to kind of play most immediately on those more negative senses of the word. But um, the word, even in fairly common usage, encompasses a lot more than that. And when you think about, you know, if you think about um, uh, the, I, the Olympic model, the ideal of the Olympics, and the amateur athlete, and kind of the cult of amateurism um, that still sort of flickers here and there around the world, and the idea that there's something sort of um, that, that, that gets you back to the original sense of the word amateur, which comes from a French word that means a lover, um, someone who does what he or she does out of love for it, not out of um, the desire to get paid to do it. And so you know you have these, and you can be an amateur of opera, or you can be an amateur of fly fishing, and the implication there is that you are completely consumed by it. You you give it every fiber of your being, but you do so purely out of out of uh, passion and love for the pursuit, and you would be doing it whether or not you got paid. Hmm. Um, And you know the word still has those senses in certain contexts, and and to me. You know, that's I guess at least the things, the two things um, that I spend uh, a lot of my time and energy and thought devoted to uh, in my life are my writing and being a a father to my kids, and um, both of those are things that you know I I I do them because I love them, Um, and. I, you know, it, with writing, writing is something that I, I've done all my life. It's something I would do even if I weren't getting paid for it. I'm very grateful and lucky that I, I've been able to make a living doing it. And there's this, uh, um, I mean, I think my, my goal as a father is to try to raise children who are amateurs of something, at least that they find at least one thing in life that they love so immoderately, so all-consumingly, something that is worthwhile, something that enriches their lives, but also something that they do just purely out of the love of doing it. Um,
0: If you'll permit me to read uh, what you've written so wonderfully on this, you write, Perhaps there is no perfect word for the kind of people I have raised my children to be, a word that encompasses obsessive scholarship, passionate curiosity, curatorial tenderness, and an irrepressible desire to join in the game, to inhabit in some manner through writing, drawing, dressing up for endless conversational riffing and Talmudic debate, the world of the endlessly inviting, endlessly inhabitable work of of popular art. The closest I have ever come for myself is amateur in all the original best senses of the word.
1: The thing about amateurs is that they like to get together. You know, uh, (laughs) amateurs, uh, To being a true amateur is something that you do with other people. And so, you know, the nucleus... I hope for 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 our kids is is our family and each other, and they are each other's. They form a fan club together, you know, and they do have a lot of shared passions and shared enthusiasms. And and, and to me, well, that's
2: the, I often say that the reason people people always ask why you have so many kids. I don't know if they ask you, honey, but they always oh, no, ask, "Wow." Always, uh, um, well, and I and lately I've been saying I have so many children because my husband was the. President of a club of one, his whole life, uh-huh. and he wanted more members. Yeah, exactly. And, so, and yeah. now we have now there's. I needed a,
1: at least needed a treasurer, a vice president, and a secretary, <laughs> and, a, and a sergeant at arms. So I've and he got Yeah.
0: <laughs> Michael Shabon, that remind. I was going to go back to your wife, but I but because of what just was mentioned, I, I have to stick with you, and have you share uh, at least uh, a condensed version of the amazing story with which your book, Manhood for Amateurs, opens. This spoke so deeply to me, and I suspect many, many people, uh, when they're done reading your wonderful book, will remember nothing so potently as the very first story uh, in the book, which is an odd <laughs> echo of what you and your wife were just talking
1: about. Well, yes. I mean, when I, when I was about 10 years old, um, I got this brilliant idea that I was going to start a comic book club in the town that I grew up in, in Columbia, Maryland. And, um, you know, it was purely and entirely out of this impulse that I was talking about is that a, a desire to to have friends, to have people to share my passion, my love, of comic books, with um, I didn't really know anybody that was as into them as I was, and I wanted to meet some people. And I decided I would place an ad in the paper, and my mom helped me rent a, a room in a big uh, community hall. And I had tables and chairs and a sign, and I very painstakingly typed up a newsletter for the first meeting of the club, and where I announced all the doings of the club and all the <laughs> projects we were going to have, and and you know I was just I was. I, I I was lost in my own vision of this great um, this uh, community that I was going to bring into being um, through this this uh, this club and um, went to the, the day appointed day came and there I sat at my table with my newsletters in front of me in this big empty hall and nobody came and um, finally right you know at some point a mom and another boy showed up a, a mom showed up with her son and she she. She could see what a pathetic um, situation it was, but she kind of tried to push her son into the room, you know, trying to recoup something, uh, I guess, from the lost um, venture, and he had wanted nothing to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> and, was, really good. And, and that was it. And my mom came back to retrieve me, and we packed up, you know, the stuff and put the tables and chairs away, and that was the one and only meeting of the Columbia
0: Power Book Club. I want to ask you about something you write towards the end of that chapter. You say uh... in spite of whatever consolation my mother may have offered that was the moment when i began to think of myself as a failure it's a habit i never lost Absolutely. anyone who has ever received a bad review knows how it outlasts by decades the memory of a favorable word in my heart to this day i am always sitting at a big table in a room full of chairs behind a pile of errors lies and exclamation points watching an empty doorway. My story (laughs) and my (laughs) stories are all in one way or another, the same tales of solitude and the grand pursuit of connection, of success, and the inevitability of defeat. What I want to ask you about, though, is that you uh, characterize yourself at other places in your book, and your wife, Ayolette Waldman, in her book, characterizes you as a tremendous optimist. In fact, I love, Ayolette Waldman, how you say at one point, your husband... Uh, sees things as not only the glass half full, but it's a crystal goblet. Um, so I'm trying to I'm trying to reconcile these two well, here's realities. The
1: only an optimist would have thought it was a good idea to convene the meeting of the Columbia Comic Book Club. You know, only an optimist would think people would show up, would entertain the kind of visions that I entertained of of a room crowded with buzzing comic book fans, um, you know, sharing their passion and, and their enthusiasm, and in fact. It could it could have it could have worked I mean some people do successfully start comic book clubs and people show up and and they blossom it, it was you know it, it might have it might have worked it, it didn't work in my case and and I think maybe the, the thing about being an optimist is um, just as with a pessimist if uh, both being an optimist and a pessimist means that you're impervious to contrary evidence so if you're if you're a true optimist, no matter how badly things go, you you always kind of retain that stubborn, um, I I mean, to me, it's just an animal impulse. It has no conscious um, element whatsoever. It's just a reaction. And it's the same with pessimism. Uh, You know, things can go extremely well for a pessimist. And um, a true pessimist, um, and I should know because I'm married to one,
2: can (laughs) always
1: find, you know, the cloud for any silver lining. Um, I remember
2: there was when when Bad Mother went on the New York Times bestseller list. Oh right, Michael. There was after you know we got the news, and um, I don't know how long later. What, fifteen minutes? Michael said, "I wonder how long the glow was going to last when you could you know snatch." defeat from the jaws of victory in that particular piece of news yeah i can't
1: remember what was the bad thing you found in that but you did manage to find some downside to being on the best star list i, can't, I know because it was like your rank it was like you weren't number 14 you were number
0: 15 <laughs> this nicely segues into a, one of my favorite moments in bad mother by islet waldman where you write this about yourself i am cynical and pessimistic And I don't believe in love at first sight. I believe you have to know someone to love him, have to see his good and bad sides, his flaws and foibles. I believe that love grows and that attraction or infatuation cannot be the basis of a real life together. And yet, there is a word in Yiddish, bashet, that that translates more or less as soulmate, intended, the one that God or fate meant for you. Tell us about uh, how that uh, characterizes your connection with your husband and the connection the two of you share.
2: Well, you know, it's it's I, I, I really don't believe in love at first sight. And yet, I mean, when Michael and Michael and I were fixed up on a blind date by his best friend from high school and my roommate in uh, I was living in New York after law school at the time, and. I had this amazing experience when we uh, on our first date. First of all, he was 20 minutes late, mm-hmm. which set the stage. I was already kvetching. Yeah. But um, and I had I had worked so hard to sort of pick the perfect outfit. We'd had a very fun phone conversation, so I got myself obsessed about picking the perfect outfit. And then he buzzed the buzzer. And my I was living at the time in in a part of New York that before Giuliani's tenure was a complete nightmare with you know crack vials on the street that you'd crunch under your boots as you walked to the subway and after Giuliani became this you know fantasy land of uh, I don't know hedge fund managers or something anyway, I went at this point we were still in in, in crack vial mode and I went down to I had to, I had to go down the stairs to let him in because um, the buzzer was broken on the building and there, standing behind the bulletproof glass in the lobby with this adorable man holding a bouquet of irises. And I had the most amazing thought, which was not, oh, he's so perfect, or oh, this is so magical. But I thought to myself, okay, now I can finally stop dating. <laughs> and I really, at that very moment, I knew that this was the person that I was going to spend the rest of my life with, even though I don't believe in that. But um, but there it was. And it was a magical first date. And our first kiss was on the Bowery in New York City. And um, it's been pretty much, you know, it's, it's been fabulous ever since. Hmm. Not that it hasn't been hard and not that it hasn't taken an incredible amount of work also. But at the core of our relationship, I think, is that remains that sense of magic and, and um, intention and some broader sense that we were meant to be together. Even though I will say again and again that neither of us believe in it. We don't believe in it intellectually, but I guess we believe in it with our heart.
1: I mean I think you, you transfer that idea of I mean I, I, th- I don't think that would work. I don't think you actually can sustain um, that uh, notion of love at first sight or that that this was meant to be was intended, if you don't have that sort of um, belief in some great intender um, who's making you know making matches and arranging marriages and so on. I think you, you what you do have to do is find a way to transfer that intention to yourself you know mm-hmm. that, that the intention that there is an intent um, in maintaining and sustaining and feeding this um, this partnership um, that has to ultimately come from from the partners themselves and it has to there has to be a certain constant level of intentions going on at all times that you that you bear in mind that this is a a um, that this was meant to be and the people that are the, the ones doing the meaning um, are 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 us mm-hmm. right
2: and i guess it's also you know if there's anything out we i think we both share this sense of our marriage as as a a personality a body of its own you know that we're both committed to you know there's this there's um, each of us as individuals, and then there's also this marriage, which is incredibly important. Right. I mean, in it's it,
1: it's like uh, maybe in some ways it's analogous to the Constitution. You know, right. in, in the U.S. government. It's like it's both. A, there's a document. There's actually a piece of paper, and then there's this whole um, kind of ideal and these and these principles that are sort of enshrined in the document, and, uh-huh. and that is ultimately what everything rests on. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, so I think, and and in in many ways, we do that 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 idea of and having been meant to be, of uh, being each other's but share. It's sort of like the constitution of our marriage and that we, you know, when things do go awry or what, there's a sense of being adrift in some way, just as with this country, you know, that, that that's ultimately you have to kind of go back to that and say, well, what are we, why did we constitute this in the first place and what were the principles and, 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 and that always worked.
0: Mm-hmm. We're speaking with Michael Shabon, author of Manhood for Amateurs and Ayelet Waldman, author of Bad Mother. And uh, about halfway through our our conversation, it's time for us to talk about parenthood. And in particular, uh, the distinct expectations that uh, society at large seems to have when it comes to fathers and mothers. And as we read your two books, and as you each write about your own experiences as as parents, that's maybe the single most striking uh, divide between what the world seems to expect. Uh, Michael Shabon, you write at the at the top of one of your first chapters, the handy thing about being a father is that the historic standard is so pitifully low. <laughs> and on the other hand, Ayelet Waldman, much of the first chapter of your book is uh, about the uh, absurdly high standards which society seems to have from mothers. Absolutely. You say this book is about the perils and joys of trying to be a decent mother in a world intent on making you feel like a bad one. Mm-hmm. Who wants to start in our efforts to make sense Michael, of that? Michael, tell
1: the story about standing in line with the baby going. Well, um, uh, uh, yeah, I, I tell the story in the in the piece that you just referred to, um, that that moment uh, of insight arises out of this experience That is a that has happened to me in many different versions and many different contexts um, since I became a dad. But... I I was in our neighborhood supermarket one day, our little corner market rather, just standing there in line waiting to pay for my my stuff, and I was holding our youngest son in my arms, and I was literally not doing anything. I was holding him. I was thinking random thoughts. I was getting ready to pay for my groceries, um, um, and I became aware of this woman standing behind us who was just beaming at us so fondly, almost insanely fondly. Um, smiling and, and looking at us and and you know finally she just couldn't contain herself anymore and she said you, you are a great dad, I can just tell, and you know I like I said I've had this experience before and and as with every other time I just thanked her and you know took it as the compliment that she meant it but actually inside it it really rankled me because. I wasn't doing anything. And he does.
2: The thing is, you are a great dad. Right. That... I work
1: very hard at it. <laughs> I do so much that this woman has never seen, you know, that, that involves discomfort, trouble, heartache, problem-solving, um, just simply kind of physically showing up and keeping track of stuff and, and all of these things that I do do that because it is important to me to be a good father and then to get to get – I mean, there's almost nothing more infuriating than being praised for something – that um, you know that it, that you re, your self regard is not worthy of praise. You know
2: what's more infuriating? Never being praised for things <laughs> that <laughs> are worthy very, of praise. Exactly
1: right, and you know I'm fully aware of that, and 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 you know that was part of my thought at that moment too. Is like what would it take? what would a woman have to do, what would a mother have to do in this situation for some total stranger to come up to her and say, you are a really great mom, I can tell. And, you know, as I said in the piece, she would have to engage in some kind of super heroic, um, you know, saving her child's life from choking while, while at the same time um, purchasing healthy snacks and, um, you know, also mentally coming up with a new plan for organizing her kids' um, closets all at once. And, and even in the, in that case, everybody would just probably look at her and think, well, duh, you're the mama. <laughs>
0: <Did all that. laughs> I, I like how you uh, say at one point, Michael, I know there is a double standard at work. I suppose if I'm honest, I would have to acknowledge that in my worst moments, I'm grateful for it. Sure. For the easy credit that people, mothers for God's sake, are willing to extend to me for doing very little uh, at all. And on the other hand, you talked about how it is in part the monumental open-endedness of the job, that is now talking about motherhood, with its infinite number of infinitely small pieces that routinely leads mothers to see themselves as inadequate, therefore making the task of recognizing their goodness at any given moment so hard. Islet Waldman, uh, uh, what's it like to be a mother bearing (laughs) those kind of expectations uh, from yourself and the world?
2: it's so funny, when I was writing the book, I asked a bunch of my friends, what what was a good mother? I just wanted, you know, I said, give me your definition of a good mother. And their definition, the one that these moms themselves gave, what, it was hilarious. It was like some, co- some, you know, combination of Mary Poppins and um, June Cleaver and Martha Stewart and Dr. Spock all rolled, oh, and also you know, she has to be physically fit and gorgeous, and all rolled into one, embodying some perfect, placid sense of, you know, constant goodwill and devotion to her child above all else. And, you know, the what the ribbon that ran through everybody's definition is something other than me. A good mother is something that I could never possibly aspire to be. And it was all said, you know, as a, it was all said in the best of humor. But I think that's actually what most of us feel at the, you know, all the time is that, you know, if we work, we feel like we're harming our kids by not being there. If we don't work, we feel like we're harming our kids by not providing a role model of someone who, you know, works out in the world. I mean, this is this endless sense of, um, of failing to measure up. And if my book does anything, it's kind of a, you know, begs us to reevaluate that sense and to try to give ourselves and each other a break every once in a while,
0: right? You—it's
2: I mean, uh, a nice thought, you know. I do. I—I I feel like I try all the time to do that, and I succeed about eleven percent of the time.
0: Hmm. Uh, you, of course, uh, wrote so memorably uh, about motherhood and and the place of your your own parenthood. In your in your life, uh-huh. and attracted an incredible firestone oh, of, of yeah. a storm of criticism ab- ab- about uh, your 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 honest statement about what motherhood meant to you, and and in a sense where it fit into your own personal framework. I'm I'm especially curious to know uh, how much you expected that. Response. I mean, surely you right. had to know that somebody was going to take ex- right. take issue with what you said.
2: I, even, despite the fact that I seem to say controversial things every time I open my mouth, I'm always surprised. I'm always surprised at the extent of the controversy. You know, there's an old saying: um, uh, the, a father's, the most important thing a father can do for his child is to love his love the child's mother, and that's you know that's an old saying that people said all the time. And essentially, that's what my essay said: that the most important thing a mother can do for her children is to love their father. And um, I did, I mean, part of the reason I didn't expect the firestorm was because I wrote the piece initially for this anthology, and, you know, nobody reads those. Um, and the difference became when um, the piece ended up getting picked up for the New York Times, and I hadn't really, I was so excited about having it be in the New York Times, which is, you know, I grew up in northern New Jersey, it's my paper of record, um, that I didn't sort of put together the difference between having that essay in which I basically say that if a good mother is a mother who loves her husband, her children more than anyone else in the world, well, then I'm a bad mother because I love my husband more than my children. I hadn't put together the the ramifications of having that read by five million people as opposed to five people.
0: Right. And
2: so it was, but even so, you know, sometimes something just kind of captures the zeitgeist. And I think especially we are in this country obsessed with stories of bad mothers and when there is a, a story of a bad mother that excites our interest, we see that story everywhere. From the, you know, incredibly tragic cases of a mother like Andrea Yates who drowned her children in the bathtub to the sort of ridiculous things of like Britney Spears, you know, driving with her, driving with her baby on her lap. I mean, those those stories become obsessions for us and what happened with that essay is it became a very momentary obsession and you know, we woke up, we went to sleep, um, on Sunday, and the, you know, oh, cool, look, my essay's in the New York Times, and we woke up on Monday morning, and, um, it, you know, it was like we were in the middle oh of the Oh, my God, tornado. I'm married
1: to Andrea Yates. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> well, and,
0: and I wonder if part of it was that uh, your essay, when couched in the midst of 32 other essays uh, from a number of different writers reflecting on motherhood in different ways, it probably still would have rankled uh, a few readers, but probably not to the same extent as yep. when here it was, this solitary expression of, of thoughts that probably a lot of people have perhaps felt uh, and yet never outwardly expressed. Right.
2: And it's true, you know, I, I keep thinking about why, why people got so upset, and, and the people who got so upset were all women, and primarily women of a certain education level and class, like basically mine. Um, and what made people, you know, I kept wondering, what you know, you read something you disagree with in the paper, which happens to me every single day. You kind of roll your eyes, or maybe you, you know, call the writer an idiot, and you move on, and there were people who just never moved on. I mean, I had a year later, I was doing an event, and it was it was this event you had to buy the book and pay for lunch. It was a serious investment of time if you wanted to come to this event where I was appearing, and money, too. And this woman came, and she paid her $25, and she came up to me, and she said, I'm here today because I'm so obsessed with that essay you wrote. that my husband said finally he just couldn't stand it anymore, and I had to go confront you. And this is a full year later, and all I could think of was, oh, honey, you know, just get over it. Call me an idiot and move on. But, you know, uh, but I think that something happens nowadays when we write about women in their 30s and 40s, women of my sort of caught in the middle, for lack of a better word, post-feminist generation, And um, it's like, it it isn't even so much that you write an essay, but you write a Rorschach blot. And everybody reads something about their lives in that. And they read an indictment of themselves in anything that's written about women of that generation. And that's what happened. you know, what I said or didn't say was nowhere near as relevant as what the woman who was reading it experienced and was feeling about herself and her marriage and her children.
0: Hmm. And, of course, that's one of the most uh, important reasons to... To write provocative stuff is for the way it gets people thinking and mm-hmm. reflecting about their lives in ways they never did before. Michael Shaban, you write so perceptively about the way the world has changed since the time when you and I were, were growing up in a, a couple of very intriguing ways. For instance, you write a whole chapter just about Legos and the way <laughs> Legos have changed. Uh, right. from when they first uh, emerged here, here in America. Uh, say a word about that.
1: Well, I mean, yeah, when, you know, as you remember, when, when, when I was young, uh, Legos were this, um, they, were, they were all about abstraction. They were very abstract play things where you, you and, and, and the Lego company themselves never would have presumed to tell you what to make out of your Legos. They might offer some suggestions. There would be a little brochure with some pictures of the kinds of things you might want to try to make out of your Legos uh, with no guidelines given for how to do that. And everything you made out of them kind of sort of looked like what it was supposed to be, but it also clearly was made out of these rectangles and squares, uh, which was essentially all we had to build with at the time in a very limited palette of colors Um, and uh, that was how I remembered Legos being. I loved Legos. Uh, I put them aside. I grew up, and then I had children of my own and, and went to the store to buy them Legos and came home with this incredibly elaborate um, American Indian play set for our oldest child that had um, you know, very detailed, specific instructions of exactly how to reproduce um, with your Legos, which now came in all kinds of shapes and sizes and colors, um, the picture on the front of the box. Uh, or the, the pictures that were in the brochure. And um, uh, what also had changed, as I soon discovered, was that there was all kinds of corporate branding going on, marketing going on in the world of Legos, so that you had Star Wars play sets and uh, NBA play sets and um, all of these um, very uh, clear, um, almost requirements that, um, of what to build with your Legos, and everything had to come out looking very realistic and exactly like what it is supposed to be. Uh, and that just seemed to me to be this crucial shift in the idea of what of what play was um, and who was in charge of children's play. Um, um, and I, I found I, I found it depressing, and I kind of rebelled against the whole idea of it. Um, it but that was mostly I because he
2: spent three weeks of his life assembling an at-at.
1: Oh God! Exactly. <laughs> you know, and what it, it had become was modeling. Like Lego had become modeling. Where, and we know there always was modeling. Modeling was always is fun and always has been fun. But, but that's not what Lego used to be about. And and I resented it. But what I what I then realized in the course of you know a couple of years of watching my my children get older and and. And destroy the models that we had made out of the Legos, and have them fall apart and break and collapse. Is that then they all do go into this this big welter of drawers and bins? Um, and then the kids start to mix and match, and they and and, and what I realized was, was you know, there we live in this in this time of of, of sampling, of, of the mashup, you know, where where the way that um, young people today approach the art that they love and the art that they consume and that they make themselves is to take bits and pieces from here and there. You take a, you know, the, sound, the, the beat from one song and the, the chorus from another song and you sample in pieces of this and that and you create this new artifact that is your own but which you've made out of um, you know, bits and pieces of other things. And of course, that's always what art has been about to one degree or another. Um, and 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 I saw that in fact, you know, yes, there is this sort of um, controlling corporate um, uh, ethos at work in the Lego sphere, but that kids, as they always do, because kids are subversive people, um, that they do find these ways to subvert and to kind of gain regain control for themselves of the of the materials of play that they given. <laughs>
0: <didn't. laughs> a last quick question. I know we're about out of time. Ilet um, Waldman. Uh, I think the most memorable chapter in your book is uh, the chapter called Rocket Ship, in which you uh, talk about uh, feeling compelled to to end a pregnancy because of, of, of medical issues with the fetus and of the, the desperate uh, sorrow that you, you felt over that, you and and your husband. And one of the things you write in this chapter is, yet in the wake of all of that, I found myself desperate to write. I had the sense that I wasn't ever going to understand and learn to live with what had happened unless I wrote about it. I wasn't going to return to even a facsimile of the person I'd been before without the comfort of solitude and words. Beyond that really powerful story I imagine for both of you that is true that one of the ways you navigate through marriage and parenthood and your own lives is through this wonderful gift you've been given of of writing.
2: That's absolutely true, although I should say that it wasn't that I felt compelled to terminate the pregnancy, but rather I chose to, and it was dealing right. with that choice that, that made me, that was so difficult for me. Um, you know, that I feel like that's one of the most, I've gotten so much from my husband. I've learned so much from him. He's he's enriched my life in ways that I never imagined that I would have this life that he has given me. But the thing, one of the things, the, the most profound gift he's given me is, you um, He's introduced me to the joys of the literary life. And I was always a reader, but I never allowed myself to imagine the possibility of being a writer. And it was only because Michael um, was there as a model and encouraged me that I could find that. And it is is—it is the way we both translate the world. It is the way we both experience the world. It's the, one of the greatest ways we take pleasure in the world. And of all the things you've given me, sweetie, it's, you know, and it's saying a lot because you've given me these four incredible tips. <laughs> It's
1: one of the most beautiful and well, important.
0: Thank you. from we all for Clint. <laughs> 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 uh, Waldman's book is Bad Mother, a chronicle of maternal crimes, minor calamities, and occasional moments of grace. Michael Chabon's book is Manhood for Amateurs, the Pleasures and Regrets of a Husband, Father, and Son. Both of these books now available in paperback. They belong on everyone's shelf. And... Uh, I am so grateful for this uh, pleasure and opportunity and honor to speak with both of you. Thank you so much. it's been a real joy for us, too. Thank Thank you you so so much. much. This is a portion of Michael Chabon's memoir, Manhood for Amateurs, The Pleasures and Regrets of a Husband, Father, and Son. This is from a chapter called The Wilderness of Childhood. When I was growing up, our house backed onto woods, a thin two-acre remnant of a once-mighty wilderness. This was in a Maryland city where the enlightened planners had provided a number of such lingering swaths of green. They were tame as can be, our woods, and yet at night they still filled with unfathomable shadows. In the winter they lay deep in snow and seemed to absorb, to swallow whole, all the ordinary noises of your body and your world. Scary things could still be imagined to take place in those woods. It was the place into which the bad boys fled after they egged your windows on Halloween and left your pumpkins pulped in the driveway. There were no Indians in those woods, but there had been once. We learned about them in school. Patuxent Indians they were called, swift, straight-shooting, silent as deer. Gone but for their lovely place names, Patapsco, Wickamico, Patuxent. A minor but undeniable aura of romance was attached to the history of Maryland, my home state. Refugee, Catholic, Englishmen, Cavaliers and Ringlets and Ruffs, Pirates, Battles, the Sacks of Washington, the Star-Spangled Banner, Harriet Tubman, and Antietam. And when you went out into those woods behind our house, you could feel all that, all that history, those battles and dramas and romances, those stories. You could work it into your games, your imaginings, your lonely flights from the turmoil of torpor of your life at home. My friends and I spent hours there, braves, crusaders, commandos, blues and grays. But the wilderness of childhood, as any kid could attest who grew up like my father on the streets of Flatbush in the 40s, had nothing to do with trees or nature. I could lose myself on vacant lots and playgrounds in the alleyway behind the Wawa, in the neighbor's yards, on the sidewalks, anywhere, in short, I could reach on my bicycle a 1970 Schwinn Typhoon Coke Can Red with a banana seat, a sissy bar, and ape hanger handlebars. On and I covered the neighborhood in a regular route for half a mile in every direction. I knew the locations of all my classmates' houses, the number of pets and siblings they had, the brand of popsicle they served, the potential dangerousness of their fathers. Childhood is a branch of cartography. Most great stories of adventure, from The Hobbit to Seven Pillars of Wisdom, come furnished with a map. That's because every story of adventure is in part the story of a landscape, of the interrelationship between human beings, or hobbits as the case may be, and topography. Every adventure story is conceivable only in terms of the particular set of geographical features that in each case sets the course literally of the tale. But I think there is another deeper reason for the reliable presence of maps in the pages or in the end pages of an adventure story, whether that story is imaginatively or factually true, We have this idea of armchair traveling, of the reader who seeks in the pages of a ripping yarn or a memoir of polar exploration the kind of heroism and danger in unknown half-legendary lands that he or she could never hope to find in life. This is a mistaken notion in my view. People read stories of adventure and write them because they have themselves been adventurers. Childhood is, or has been, or ought to be, the great original adventure, a tale of privation, courage, constant vigilance, danger, and sometimes calamity. For the most part, the young adventurer sets forth equipped only with the fragmentary map marked, Here There Be Tigers and Mean Kid With Air Rifle, that he or she uh, has been able to construct out of a patchwork of personal misfortune, bedtime reading, and the accumulated local lore of the neighborhood children. A striking feature of literature for children is the number of stories, many of them classics of the genre, that feature the adventures of a child, more often a group of children, acting in a world where adults, particularly parents, are completely or effectively out of the picture. Think of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the Railway Children, or even Charles Schultz's Peanuts. The thing that strikes me now when I think about the wilderness of childhood is the incredible degree of freedom my parents gave me to adventure there. A very grave, very significant shift in our idea of childhood has occurred since then. The wilderness of childhood is gone. The days of adventure are past. The land ruled by children to which a kid might exile himself for at least some portion of every day from the neighboring kingdom of adulthood has in large part been taken over, co-opted, colonized, and finally absorbed by the neighbors. The traveler soon learns that the only way to come to know a city, to form a mental map of it, however provisional, and begin to find his or her way around it is to visit it alone, preferably on foot, and then become as lost as one possibly can. I have been to Chicago maybe a half dozen times in my life on book tours, and yet I still don't know my north shore from my north side because every time I visited, I have been picked up and driven around and taken to see the sights by someone far more versed than I in the city's wonders and hazards, State Street, Halstead Street, The Loop. To me, it's all a vast, jumbled lot of stage sets and backdrops passing by the window of a car. This is the kind of door-to-door, all-encompassing escort service that we adults have contrived to provide for our children. We schedule their encounters for them, driving them to and from one another's houses so they never get a chance to discover the unexplored lands between. If they are lucky, we send them out to play in the backyard where they can be safely fenced in and even in extreme cases monitored with security cameras. When my family and I moved onto our street in Berkeley, the family next door included a nine-year-old girl. In the house two doors down the other way, there was a nine-year-old boy, her exact contemporary and like her, a lifelong resident of the street. They had never met. The sandlots and creek beds, the alleys and woodlands have been abandoned in favor of a system of reservations. Chuck E. Cheese, the jungle, the discovery zone, jolly internment centers mapped and planned by adults with no blank spots aside from the doors marked staff only. When children roller skate or ride their bikes, they go forth armored as for battle, and their parents typically stand by. What is the impact of the closing down of the wilderness on the development of children's imaginations? This is what I worry about the most. I grew up with a freedom, a liberty that now seems breathtaking and almost impossible. A moment from Michael Sheban's wonderful best-selling book, Manhood for Amateurs, The Pleasures and Regrets of a Husband, Father, and Son. I'm Gregory Berg.